Hi, my name is Jamil, and you're listening to Public Health World. Join me as I interview people making a difference in the world and their communities through public health and global health alike. Today I'm here with Omari Richardson. He holds a Bachelor of Science from the University of Tampa and completed his MPH at the University of Florida. For almost three years, Omari has been working on his own project called the Public Health Millennials. He runs a blog, an Instagram page, podcast and more um, based on trying to get people interested in public health um, and helping new professionals into the industry. Omari has a passion for health equity um, through a public health lens. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey Omari, uh, thanks for being on the uh, podcast. Um, How's your morning in America in this case? The pleasure is mine. I'm so glad that you reached out and I'm glad that we can make time. As you said, it is morning time here. It is evening time where you are in Australia. Um, Day earlier. Day later, sorry. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But but my morning is going well. You know, not every morning I get to start off with a podcast interview. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So uh, I suppose start off the bat. I do do like a little icebreaker occasionally, Um, just like as I said, just to break the ice so to speak um so i've got two questions for you one um what is your favorite food Ooh, my favorite food um when you say that the first thing that comes to mind is definitely doubles which is a trinidadian food um it's based out of it's just like trinidadian west indian um type food um so it's like what what is the actual food like what's in it um do, do you know you probably know about like fried bread. Yeah, yeah, vaguely. So, so it, yeah, so so it's similar to fried bread in the sense that you you frying dough, which we call bara, and then mm-hmm. there's like curry chickpeas in there. Yeah, yeah, and there's yeah. like there's like cut up. There's some nice like there's a sweet sauce. There's some mango that they put in there. There yeah. is um, cucumbers, and it is delicious. Uh, it looks like a mess. <laughs> but but it is delicious. So if anyone is interested, um, just Google doubles Trinidad and you will see it come up there. It might look yep. a little off turning, but the taste is amazing. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, and the second one is def- is much more related to public health. And it's if you could fix one public health issue tomorrow, what would it be? Um, the wow, limited that money, a... anything. Just just go for it. <laughs> that 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 is a big it's one, and, and I guess. <laughs> I, I guess the, the biggest one would be, would have to be racism and, and to that point also poverty. I think poverty and racism are interlinked mm. and um, the issues that we can solve by giving people resources to, to be more healthy because we know poverty is linked to a, a host of poor health outcomes. Um, so ensuring that that is there and as well as racism has been built into society and is been built into has built inequities which i I bet we'll talk a little bit more about Mm, later in the podcast so i think so i think fixing those two would would be the things that uh i would i would want to do Mm, yeah cool okay yeah that's awesome 
Um, so now that we've uh, done that, um, who are you? As I said, like, how, how do you identify, et cetera? Same sort of question as you tend to ask is your first question. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So my name is Omari Richens, he, him pronouns, originally from Trinidad and Tobago, which is a tiny island, the southernmost island in the Caribbean. Grew up there until I was 16, lived in the Middle East for a bit. Uh, my family immigrated there. So I did my last two years of high school there at an American international school. From there, went on to do my, my collegiate schooling in the US, so in Florida, and then after schooling, moved to Alaska for 14, 14 months. Then, I, was, then I, I currently live in North Carolina, but partially in Atlanta because my partner lives there. Um, more, more about myself. I like football. My teams are Bayern Munich, Arsenal, Netherlands. Uh, so uh, for those who don't know and don't realize, we, by football, we mean soccer. Um, like, <laughs> but yes, um, football is the correct name. <laughs> That, that that's funny that it's funny because the usa and i feel like australia the two countries four countries that, the four countries as well true, so, ca true. canada uh, new zealand australia america and like not like like usa that is literally it <laughs> that is it, so it's so funny that that is mm. the case um especially granted that usa and canada and new zealand and australia are so far apart <laughs> mm. <laughs> but but regardless uh, those are my teams also support trinidad and Tobago. they've been doing a lot better than they have in recent years so looking forward to seeing the growth of that mm. team um a little bit more personally about myself i like to travel uh, i like to focus on wellness and things that i do I enjoy building communities. I like personal finance and investing. Um, I'm an avid podcast listener slash watcher. I watch a lot of podcasts on YouTube, hence why my podcast is on YouTube. Uh, lifelong learner, and I and I want to be someone that makes their path in uh, health equity and in public health, really creating opportunities and access and uh, for people that like look like me and haven't had those types of opportunities. Yeah. And I'm a content creator with the Public Health Millennial, which I'm, I'm guessing we'll dive into more definitely, a little bit yeah. later on. Yeah, no, definitely, yeah. Um, you're uh, vegan-ish as well, I think you said recently as well, uh, which jumped me right up because I'm, ve I'm fully vegan. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, cool, that's awesome, yeah. So. Yeah, 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 absolutely. De definitely try to eat very plant-based. My partner's actually ve vegan. What, what, what pursued you in that direction? Um, I know a lot of uh, African-Americans is very big in the African-American community as far as percentage-wise goes, and a lot of it's like reclaiming history because like, if you look at most uh, African, like traditional African foods, they're all very plant-based. Is that kind of similar to you? Like I'm misregaining yeah. some sort of... Yeah, that, I, I like that that perspective. So initially, I was a pescatarian slash vegetarian, and I've been that way for maybe seven years now. Um, and as of more recently, I've been eating more heavily plant-based diets. And I think it is everything that you're seeing, as well as I think it's a, a way of saying F you to the system, because I feel like a lot of the food <laughs> that we have, have, have has come from inequitable systems that mm. don't cherish cherish the land that it comes from it doesn't cherish the, the black land and it has like if we just look at the because i work with a lot of black farmers and they struggle very much compared to a lot of the mm. white farmers and i think it is about reclaiming that land reclaiming that history mm. um pushing away from societal systems that are there and really finding a way for us to 
reclaim and 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 be our own people and i think food yeah, is is yeah. the driver of that yeah they no, definitely i definitely get more more into that once we go back down to uh health equity and all that sort of area said like i'm big on nutrition and how it relates to like racism and things like that which a lot of people don't think of so i'd love to get your views on some of my thoughts but um moving on from that for now at least um what's your definition of public health yeah, and this this is a great question, and I and I guess something that I can answer, and I probably will answer in so many different ways in so many different contexts. But looking at my perspective, I think public health is just a tool and the strategies to work towards a healthier world, um, a more equitable world. And some would say, well, most people would say it's a science and art of protecting and improving the health of communities. And I think uh, it's important to to share that I wanted to improve health. And the only way that I knew about that traditionally was becoming a doctor. But thankfully, I was able to, to get into public health and learn about this prevention aspect and really focusing on communities and populations as opposed to treating symptoms of disease, but focusing on the root cause. Uh, yeah. So public health spans many things from like sidewalks to mental health, to transportation, to healthy eating, health, healthy sex and relationships and everything in between. Uh, but public health is a tool and strategy that I have gained in my life to make the impact that I would like to make. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, so um, kind of going on from that is what drew you to public health in the first place? Yeah, my, my story into public health is probably not very unfamiliar to to others or like it's very similar to, to other people i had no clue what public health was i graduated from my bachelor's program and uh, i was applying for masters of medical sciences programs i got rejected from three of the four programs that i applied to and i was just looking for something else to do with my biology degree and thankfully i fell upon master of public health programs i had no idea what it was um, and then from there, in 2017, it was just leaning about public health. Um, and and I see I see this to say I've had 100 interviews on my podcast. I, I think rushing into a degree is definitely not the best path to, to thinking about, nor was it probably the most healthy decision. But thankfully, it worked out. Um, and I'm thankful to be able to find out about public health when I did and get into public health because I thought it was just so cool. Mm. And it was... And I was like, why is no one telling us about this at a younger age type thing? And that, that's what like kind of prompted me to start my blog and start my podcast and all of that, because I just thought this was something that people needed to know more about. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, as I said, public health is, public health is everything, is, uh, is, is that saying that people say? Um, so uh, I suppose, how do you get to where you are now? I know that you started at the University of Tampa. Yeah, yeah. So I get, I guess similar to, to the last question, started University of Tampa. I got my bachelor's in biology. I started off as a pre-veterinary medicine biology degree person and slowly switched over to pre-med because I just I just didn't think that if I could be a veterinarian anywhere in the world, I know that people in the US love their pets, but people in other places in the world don't love their pets as much. So just thinking about sustainable living there. Mm. Um, and then from there, I graduated in 2016. And as I stated, I was looking to still become a doctor, physician, 
and apply for Masters of Medical Sciences programs, which are one year kind of like gap year programs before people reapply to medical school. And I was lucky enough to get rejected from, from the schools there and found myself at the University of Florida, where I got my Masters of Public Health in the concentration of health management and policy. And that was really because I wanted to focus on large systemic um, large systems and we used to, to change the systems because throughout my my bachelor's in biology we're talking more about microbiology and parasitology and all these very micro stuff so looking at it on a large scale is something that was exciting for me um and uh yeah so that, that's how i got into public health mm -hmm. and then after my mph i was able to get a community health fellowship in alaska and uh I currently work for the Kate B. Reynolds Charitable Trust in North What's Carolina. What's that for people who might not know? Like myself, I wasn't too sure what that is. I found it a little bit hard to find what it was. The, the Kate B. Reynolds Charitable yeah. Trust? Yeah, 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 of, of course. And it, it's tricky because even, even me coming into this role, I had no clue what it was. I didn't know how to explain it to people. And I feel like I still have a difficult time explaining it to people. Um, but the Kate, Kate B. Reynolds Charitable Trust is a 75-year-old health foundation. It was it was started by Miss Kate B. Reynolds. Um, when she passed away, she had two kids, so she willed her money into this trust, which was um, focused on 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 um, improving the health and quality of life for low-income North Carolinians. Um, our, our work at the trust is really focused on equity and systems change and giving power to communities, especially communities that have been left out and have been disinvested from. And these communities are mostly rural and mostly black. Um, and one, one of the projects that I came into to work at the trust was a 10-year initiative called Healthy Places North Carolina. It was a 10-year initiative to invest $100 million into 10 rural counties that are around the states that have that are vibrant but yet have been underinvested for a long time. And in Healthy Places, North Carolina, we do work around ACEs, which is adverse childhood experiences, substance misuse, obesity reduction, which is actually like food systems change mm -hmm. and active recreation. And I also lead work around capacity building. So we are a public health funder, I would say, or health philanthropy funder. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't know if that helps. A little bit, yeah. I mean, it's definitely more than what I found. I said, like, the little bit I looked was, like, on LinkedIn <laughs> and stuff, and they're very, very short blurb on what they do. Um, and also, yes. sorry, just backing up slightly as well, how did you hear about public health? Because you didn't actually mention that um, earlier. So how, what, like, how did you actually hear about public health? Yeah, so I, I was just looking for masters, uh, well, master-level programs and find, seeing what I can do with a biology degree. And just somehow from Google searching, from being in Gainesville, Florida, where the University of Florida is, thankfully they had a Master's of Public Health program. So at first I found, I want to say I found the public health certificate. And then from there, I was like, oh, what, what's this public health thing? And then I yeah. looked into it some more so that you can do a Master's of Public Health and then yeah. pursued it from there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And the other question I had personally what is the difference in America between a university and a college? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. That's, 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 it, I, I, I didn't realize you had uh, universities until quite recently. And I was like, what? Yeah, that, 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 that's a great question and something that I didn't understand coming into the college mm -hmm. like, world in the USA, especially being from Trinidad and Tobago. Mm -hmm. um, 
but a university is usually, uh, well, I should say a college is usually a four-year institution, so they, they would they typically don't have graduate programs, yeah. um, while a university will have the four-year education as well as graduate programs, yeah. and there are probably some other nuances there that I just... Yeah, but yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, fair <laughs> enough, that makes a bit more sense, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, that definitely helps. And um, just what was Alaska like? What did you do in Alaska? Yeah, Alaska was really cool. Uh, I was really hoping cold. to stay there. Yeah, it was it was cold. It was cold, cold and dark, cold and dark, very very dark. Uh, where during, where during in the, Alaska were you? I was in Wasilla, Alaska, yep. which is like an hour north of Anchorage, so yep. pretty like pretty central Alaska. Um, still got very cold. Uh, the, your listeners are probably no Celsius, so it got down to like negative thirty at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember my, my car battery didn't work for a couple a couple of days when I when I went on travel. I had yeah, to take it into the apartment energy. to like warm down. But Being there, but I, I got, <laughs> right right. But but I got hired to to go to Alaska to really work on the community health needs assessment and mm-hmm. specifically the photo voice component um, to really just capture new data and leanings from community and from members that probably have not been listened to before that have not been engaged in a lot of the bigger research. Um, So I did that there. I did a lot of program evaluation around various public health programs. I I did work around youth homelessness and collecting data and facilitating facilitating meetings. And yeah, as I saw your face, like I, Mm. it's it's crazy to think about youth homelessness in Alaska. They are tent, tent cities in Alaska. Think about that. Like, I don't know how people survive. And it, it really, it really is uh, very, very sad. And just on, on the point here, of like intersectionality, a lot of the youth that are homeless in Alaska are homeless because their parents kick them out. Mm. And, a lot, and a lot of the time it is because they, they don't have normal societal genders or they have, or or different things like that. So yeah. I worked with a lot, a lot of LGBTQ plus homeless youth, and that that was a very interesting process. And I think it, it just taught me you really have to build that trust. You really have to move slow with these communities. They have a lot of trauma that they've been through, and and as well as them being in these professional type settings can be a little difficult, can be a little trauma inducing, especially when there are a lot of older professionals that don't really give them time and space to think and to share their voice. Um, so so that was a lot of the work that I did there. I was really, really grateful to be able to work in Alaska in a place that I never thought I would be in mm. a community that was very accepting. I was able to work with a couple of the Alaska Native tribes with the Photo Boys project as well as with some of the evaluation work that I did. So it was it was a really um wholesome experience. Yeah, definitely yeah it sounds awesome. Yeah. I would uh, it's definitely one of the ones on my bucket list uh, go to go to Alaska, yeah. Um, Absolutely yeah. Yeah, yeah no so um I can't remember, but had you done a bit of volunteering at some point as well? Yes, yes, I, I did do some volunteering. Um, this was mostly focused on me trying to get into into um, medical school. Uh, so I did volunteering at a couple different hospitals, one in Tampa and then one in Gainesville. And I, I enjoyed these experiences, but I think it really taught me that the healthcare hospital setting was not the place that I really wanted to be in. And I just I just saw how 
they treated people as as I don't know. It, it was it was they kind of looked down on on a lot of the, the people that were it's there. The and it just wasn't a model of health. It's 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 literally the whole reason that they do this is because of the biomedical model of health. And exactly. So it's like um, a big one for me is eat, like looking at things like eating disorders. Um, I don't know how it is in America, but here in Australia, we're still. I mean, we, we're getting a little bit better now, but. Um, they said it wasn't like it's but even then it's still predominantly focused on females there is nothing on like overeating and like um and like uh, binge eating in males even though like there's a huge like a very high amount of males who binge eat and things like that but because we don't talk about it it's just it's not it, it just doesn't exist it's yeah kind of yeah that, yeah that thing yeah yeah and, and, and i think just that was like real real life experience of seeing okay they're really just treating the the, the mm. symptoms here and yeah like me being a volunteer and having like those candid conversations with people just realized that mm. there were so many other factors that that were important in, in providing like in, in people up getting their optimal health and then I was able to go from that volunteer to fall right into public health and lean mm. about the systemic inequities in the healthcare system and that 20% of the GDP goes towards healthcare costs in the US, but yet they have worse outcomes than all other mm. rich countries yeah. in the world, which blows my mind still to this day, but yeah, yeah, here we are. Yeah, I've, uh, I've seen a few documentaries on that and it's like, I mean, granted, you're like the top of the list when it comes to like crazy procedures, but... It's like um, the actual physical lifespan is not like oh well, was um, healthy lifespan is quite low, which is quite yeah. sad. And like to kind of build on to what you're saying as well, like with with like, um, so I think it stems to doctors not learning or learning very little, if nothing, about public health and things like nutrition. Um, I think I as I'm a qualified nutritionist before I did this. And one that I came across when I was, uh, partly when I first went vegan, but also partly just like was looking at nutrition and stuff like that, was on average an American doctor only has about 20 hours worth of nutritional studies. Now, hmm. you look at something like um, a cardiothoracic surgeon. Um, this one blew my mind. The leading cause of death for a cardiothoracic surgeon is heart disease. <laughs> you, you think someone who spends their days treating heart disease... And putting stents in would realize that what they're eating is directly linked to the um, to, to heart disease. So it's yeah. just like just as a random sort of as I said that issue where because they don't learn enough of what they actually need to know. It's just yeah, yeah, it blew my that, that is, really blew my mind. That, that is mind boggling, mm. and I think it it just speaks to as you said the biomedical model that doesn't really think about the root causes mm. of things and how they come about. Um, so yeah, I appreciate you sharing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so moving a bit on, kind of almost what we we were just slowly starting to talk about there was is more about like the um what for people who don't know a lot of people get very confused. What is the difference between health equity and health equality, and why? is the distinguish important? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I know probably to this day, everyone's probably seen the little diagram of people standing by the baseball field and, and things like that. So just to say what health equity is, it is the systemic differences in health and health outcomes between different populations because of social condi conditions like where people live, workplace, age, and are born, so social determinants of health. 
And a quick example of difference between health equity and health equality. Okay, let's say we're going into a community to have a meeting around an environmental issue, and 30% of that population speaks Spanish. But in this meeting, they they don't bring any translators to to the. Uh... Let me let me start over there. So. <laughs> Yeah, so so there's a there's a community meeting and 25% um, of the population speaks Spanish. However, um, they all the concerns and all the conversation is held in English. Though there was this community meeting, though that they were like creating this forum for people to have these conversations, it was not equitable in the sense that everyone didn't have the same level of access to the knowledge and the information that was yeah. going on. Um, so an example of equity would be here that. Uh, the community leader hires translators to attend the meeting and offer additional meetings held in another language. So whether that's Spanish or another language to ensure that all community members are able to access the information um, and are able to make informed decisions based on on that information. So I think that that's a simple yeah, that, example yeah, a to show the difference. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. It stands for that reminded me of uh, here, here when COVID started and we were handing out like the um, Australian government and the health department were handing out um, these flyers, and a lot of them weren't even spelt correctly in in the in like the like say like if it wasn't like we have a lot of Middle Eastern people here, so like a lot of Arabic people who speak Arabic things like that, and then they'd um, write the, um, the the write it wrong in the language or the Chinese it's written completely. Like instead of being in Mandarin, it's in Cantonese, and things like that. And just like, just do some research and actually find out who the hell they're trying yeah. to work with. It's yeah, things yeah, like that it's and, just yeah, yeah. And to to that point, those are like organizational and and more like systemic inequities that that continue to exacerbate the issues that are there. Because if one group is getting getting correct information and the other group isn't. Then it's just going to continue to force that gap and create more mm. health health yeah. in, inequities. I mean, that's yeah. exactly what we saw with 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 COVID with, here in Australia. I mean, it's nothing like compared to America and things like that. But um, I, I was in Sydney, which was the second uh, highest amount of COVID cases in Australia. Actually, might even mean the highest, but it, we had, we had less lockdowns and things. Um, but for a while there, just before I moved here to Adelaide, where I'm studying. Um, we had a like a four month, almost a four month lockdown, but it was only in certain suburbs. So like if a suburb had a high amount of COVID and basically they ended up locking down the whole of the wet, like most of the Western side of Sydney, which for like, is basically like the, the poorer, lower socioeconomic, a lot of immigrants, a lot of people who don't speak any English or any English in some cases. Um, so yeah, things like that. We saw a lot of that sort of thing. Um, whereas because they didn't do their job because the government didn't do their job properly in the first place. It stemmed to so many other issues. That it's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. At that point, I just started learning about public health. So for me, it's like, like looking at this, it's like, I haven't even got a degree that could do better than this. <laughs> yeah. Kind of and, 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 and I think that that's where a lot of younger public health professionals are standing now. They're seeing the, 
what exactly inequities look like and COVID has been a great example of this mm. and ways in which to not engage community and taught us that we need to be better about engaging community leaders and, and marginalized groups to ensure that they're at the table, that they're getting the information, that they are able to take in the information and share it with their communities in mm. their in the best way for them, which which as you said was not the case with, with wrong spelling and different things yeah, like that. It's, it's just, like you could, it, it's just stupid. Like little things like that, it's like they can be so easily fixed, but they don't even do it and it's like ugh. It's like even the app, like we had, we have a COVID app. So if someone were to get COVID and they scanned into QR codes through an app. And if you got, if someone in the building got COVID, you get a message sent straight to your phone. But even the app, even the app was all in English. There was no second language. There was no, nothing else. And it's like, I think they changed it later, but at the start there wasn't. And it's like, oh my God. Yeah. Yep. Inequitable access to information yeah, happens all the app. time. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, so I suppose, um, as we know, there's a big issue, especially in America, around um, racism and it, racism is a public health issue. Um, why is raci- racism a public health issue? Well, I think it, it goes into all these conversations that, that we've just been having because historically people have been othered because of their race. There's no scientific basis for race but yet it is like one of the most important social constructs that we have right now because communities have been othered um i want to say the declaration was made sometime in 2020 when like george floyd was being murdered brianna taylor was murdered armored armored arbory was murdered as, as as along with a host of other black bodies and black people that were killed by police officers um and it, it just really is a calling to say that we need to really think about these health inequities, these systemic injustices, and we need to not only think about them, but create funding and strategic action plans to address it. I would say that racism was always a public health crisis. It was always a public health issue. Um, I'm happy that, that groups are naming it now, but I think what's even more important is that we're not only naming it, but taking the actions to move it forward. We're, we're ensuring that we're having people most impacted by issues, most impacted by racism at the table, sharing, sharing, um, sharing their perspectives. Um, because I, I think where we are today as a society, I think as, as I, especially younger professionals, we see that there is a need for so much change and mm. the way that we have done things cannot be the way that we continue to do things because it's yeah. not going to give us better outcomes. And I just wanted to be a little actionable on, on this racism as a public health issue. And I, I guess I could also talk a little bit about some of the health inequities that are baked into this racism as a as a public health issue mm-hmm. as well. And I and I'll give a very, a very like real one right now. Um so health inequities are baked into the social determinants of health. As we know, um economics or economic stability is a big factor in social determinants of health. And people with low incomes tend tend to dispor- disproportionately be black and they're the, therefore they they're more vulnerable population, more vulnerable jobs, especially in COVID. They had more disproportionate higher cases of COVID. Um, they have less wealth than white families. But the real example I wanted to bring it to was gas and just gas prices. Um, oh, petrol, at, yeah. At gas, Sorry, yeah. 
petrol yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. and gas. Um, so when we look at, at gas as a health health inequity um, in itself, with gas prices hitting like record highs, yeah. the the gas bill for the richer families, so people that make a hundred thousand and more, only equates to about two two to three percent of their budget or their spending. While compared to lower lower income families, mm. it it can go all the way up to ten percent. It could be like five to ten percent, and that in itself creates more issues because then they aren't they they trans, trans the uh, transportation infrastructure to do a lot of this a lot of the the transportation to work or from work. Uh, they just aren't these ways for people to get connected to and it's just harder for communities that have been Definitely. disinvested from to 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 make a living to live healthy to buy healthy food to get access to work mm. to get access to hospital and healthcare, and and all these different things um okay so going back to the actionable part of racism as a public health issue because i don't i just don't want to come on here and just shout racism as a public health crisis <laughs> yeah, i just yeah. leave it um I, I wanted to give people some actionable steps so on the other side of, of racism as a public health crisis is the anti-racism movement which uh, anti-racism just essentially encompasses a range of ideas and political actions meant to counter systemic racism and oppression. It is structured around intentional thoughts as well as actions. Um, so some steps that I just wanted to share with your listeners to be like more anti-racist in all our lives. And this is me, including me as a black male, I think all of us have implicit biases. So the first thing that we need to do is be self-aware um, hold ourselves accountable, see what what implicit biases we all have and see where they stem from. And and not just because you're black, you don't have systemic, <laughs> I mean, um, in, implicit biases. Everyone has biases. So yeah. we all need to check ourselves and, and see where we are and see, okay, what are the things that we are actually doing in our lives and activities that are perpetuating racism or or these inequities. Number two would be to hold others accountable and to call them out. I feel too, for too long in, in society, we've just let people say what they want to say, especially when it could be harmful in many ways. And we need, and we've come to a point, and I think Gen Z does this a lot better than other generations, is calling people out for the crap, for, yeah, for the crap that they're saying, um, which, which is good. Um, Another step here would, would be to check your information biases. So all of us are taking in information from many different places, but we have to really think, okay, are we only listening from perspectives from cis white men? Are we like, what, what are the perspectives and the information that we are taking in all the time? And how is this influencing our implicit biases and the actions that we take? And I think that is something that, that is, is very important. Like, if you don't listen to a lot of people that are other than yourself, like outside of uh, for myself, black, I listen. I try to listen to a, a host of different perspectives just to ensure that I'm not only falling into the feedback loop of everything that I see and everything that I think is okay, because then I'm unable to check my biases and then I, I can perpetuate racial inequities. Um, Another another action step here is just reading and engaging in hard and true dialogues with people. Because I think, and and I, I would caveat this by saying that 
don't go up to a black person and want to have a conversation about racism without first you doing your research first because it's just it's just very tiring for a lot of black people to have to go through these conversations day in and day out while they're facing all these inequities in life so do your research find space and time and someone that you feel safe with to have these types of conversations where they can tell you honest feedback on your thoughts and and you can actually move forward from there um one an, another action action thing that i think is important is supporting the work arts and businesses of people of color is is hugely important because as i stated earlier there's a huge economic divide and that economic divide leads into a lot of health inequities and and health outcome and the disparity in those health outcomes or the inequities in those health outcomes so ensuring that we're not only talking about these things but putting our money our time and investing that into into people of color into black organizations and to mm. that point try to become more involved in racial justice organizations and issues and i think those are, those are some great action steps to to begin to move towards uh more equitable less racist society mm, yeah definitely yeah um and i suppose moving slightly still talking about racism but i had a more of a question for you um i don't know how much uh knowledge you have around like food systems and things like that I know you said you did a bit with um, some uh, African-American farmers and things like that. But um, a question I had was, um, uh, have you heard of Dr. Milton Mills? I have not. Okay, so he's he's a, um, you should look look him up. I might even send you a link to one of his videos afterwards. Please do. so he, I first came across him on, I think it was What the Health, one of those documentaries on Netflix about, uh, about health and, and a lot about veganism and things like that. But an area that he talked about, which I found quite interesting, was um, milk, like um, dairy milk, as a uh, racism issue. Because 75% of the world is lactose intolerant, and the vast majority of them being people of colour. I think last time I looked at it, it was about 85% of African-Americans were lactose intolerant. Um, meaning I just kind of find it interesting, like, your thoughts on it as someone who's veganish. your words, um, on that sort of, uh, on that more so, um, as I said, like, almost like that, those sorts of issues from a black perspective, because I haven't really got a black perspective yet. So it'd be interesting to see what you think. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's quite in- interesting. I did not know the statistics. Um, just anecdotally, my brother, my cousins, myself have have developed a little bit of lactose intolerance. I think as I've eaten, as I've been more like plant based in my eating, trying to eat milk or <laughs> that does not go well for my stomach. Um, I don't know if you can see the show, but uh... dairy is scary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I, I think that that goes back to and. To preface this, and I don't know much about the research, but I know a lot of scientific research has been created to show that black people are inferior, to, to mm. push all these black, all these things onto black society. And that, that has been a scientific scientific basis yeah. for hundreds of hundreds of years. So I, I don't see this as anything different from like food deserts, food yeah. banks. This was probably an intentional push for people. Who, who know that that um, black communities aren't able to get nutrients from these types of milks, mm. but yet they're pushing it out there to, to the communities, which is probably making them inflamed, making them 
go through other yeah, health well, issues. There's, that... there's actually a lot of other things that like um like it may be linked to um because you can't actually digest the like most even myself even myself even though I'm not lactose intolerant and I don't drink milk anymore you can only digest a fraction of a fraction of calcium in milk you're better off with a soy milk or something like that which nowadays I don't know in America but in Australia the per litre it's approximately on par it might be slightly more occasionally but in general the home brand version is the costs the same if not even sometimes a bit cheaper at the moment um, yeah, the floods yeah. that we've had here I said a lot of our a lot of our plant based foods right now are actually cheaper than the uh, than the meats, which I think is quite cool. But yeah, just uh, as I said like looking at those sorts of things, that, um, and just the as I said the other issues like I looked, I was looking at it recently. This because it's, because of industry funded studies, which is the other issue in, in nutrition especially. Mm-hmm. About eighty five percent of all studies in nutrition are industry funded and. Um, about two thirds of them are skewed to, um, to to the industry or whoever funded its point of view. So looking at it that way, it's like um, they said you can see a huge issue because where where does the money come from? The meat, dairy, yeah. and eggs. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Kind of things. So it's interesting to see that. Like just yeah, yeah. And I'm and I'm guessing if we dig even more into it as well, you will see that not only are they funding these studies, but they're funding the political campaigns mm. of people that yeah. are running to to ensure that milk is still out there. It's crazy that we as humans in 2022 still drink milk. We're the only mm. animal that well, milk milk from another animal. Yeah, um, cow milk. Um, and after adolescence milk. as well. We're the yeah, only animal yeah. that takes milk from another animal and we're the only animal that drinks milk after adolescence, which, like, when you think of it that way, and when you consider, like, the like, the other areas, like, from the One Health point of view, I don't know if you've spent much time on that, but the One Health point of view, I said, like, if you look at it from that, like, as I said, it's clearly linked. Every time we start playing and touching animals, we put ourselves at risk for another huge epidemic, especially the way we do it in countries like Australia and America with our factory farms of chickens and especially pigs. Um, as I said, I believe North Carolina has one of the highest amount of pig farms and they're yep. all surrounded by those black communities. Um, yep. And yeah, so did you want to talk a bit about that? I know that you probably being in that area might know a little bit, so... Yeah, yeah. Um, interestingly, my my boss shared with me one of the communities that I work in, which is rural northeast North Carolina, was where the environmental justice movement actually began. Um, I, I can't I can't remember specifically what it is, but I believe it, it was because of these pig farms because they have a lot mm-hmm. of waste and that waste yeah. is dumped into the land, and and they're just huge environmental impacts not only on the land but on the people that are live there. And as we know, there's been redlining in the U.S. So people are, are forced into these certain communities and then they will put those all those pig farms with all the waste. They will put all the different factories that have all the other kinds of waste. And it, it is really crazy to, to think about. And, and that, that does not only happen in the U.S., but it mm. happens all, all around the world for black and, and other marginalized yeah, uh, we, we, we see it more in like with slaughterhouses and things like that here in Australia. And I in America as well, obviously, but generally, um, our slaughterhouses tend to be manned by like we we literally just had a whole heap of Samoans and um, sort of Polynesian island people come into Australia recently to do um, slaughterhouse work because Australians won't do it anymore. 
Um, yeah. So, as I said, we, like when we closed our borders, we actually made an exception for a hype of this Samoan and uh, the Polynesian island and Bali and all those sorts of areas so they could come and work in our slaughterhouses. And it's interesting because the, um, the slaughterhouses in those are always one in those lower socioeconomic areas. They're never mm-hmm. in a rich area. And two, um, some I, I, there's a, not many studies on it, but there was one study a couple of years ago on, um, on the link between people who work in slaughterhouses and, like, drug use and, um, and uh, domestic abuse and all those sorts of other issues as well. And it showed that those areas tended to be higher than yeah. other areas, which I thought was quite interesting as well from that sort of public health point of view said like we stop doing this to animals and all these sorts of other issues we then yeah. have this whole rollout of they said like that one our better health i don't know if you've seen like the um that was called the um was it the the sustainable goals the um world health organization SDGs. Mm-hmm. um yeah there's like 10 of them are directly related to um to animal agriculture and it's like that because they all work on them separately as well. It's like if they were working on them together, they'd probably see a lot more links. Like, as I said, like world hunger. Um, yeah. As I said, like one I looked at was um, 85% of all grain is fed to animals, fed to factory farmed animals and things like that. And um, instead of fed to the humans, there's 11 billion animals on the planet and most of them are factory farmed all the ones that are factory farmed are fed grains instead of being fed to humans. So Yeah, yeah. It's a cra- crazy cycle that we live in, a crazy system. Yeah, def- and- yeah, definitely. All those sorts of things, it just blows my mind, like, how it heavily relates to, like, especially in those heavily relates to the people, and the people who get it worse are the people in those lower socioeconomic areas, the poor black people, the even the poor white people, um, more so in countries like Australia where we have less people of colour in general, but as I said, like, in order, the Aboriginals and uh, people in Torres Strait Island people as well here in Australia and just all over. As I said, the, you can see it where obesity runs rampant in those areas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and one thing I just want to highlight there, like, uh, towards the end of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s reign, he was pushing for a fight on poverty because he, he realised that mm. not only poor black people who disproportionately suffer from these issues but there are a lot of poor white people that mm. suffer from from these issues and for for and poverty is is like ingrained in not only racism racism side but ensuring that people that are suffering and are oppressed come together and mm. try to fight the system that have been have been there uh, has been important and i think that economic side of things has been left out for too long especially in the conversation yeah. around health but you need that economic part in order yeah. to to be your healthiest especially yeah. in this capitalistic world that we live in yeah so it's i just like, want to put that out yeah there. definitely it's like people realize that um if if they put more money towards public health and education we would actually the government would actually save money 85 yeah. it's like 95 percent of heart disease is preventable but what do we do Absolutely nothing. I mean, in Australia, I think only 10 or 15% of our um, health money goes to public health instead of instead of it being 50-50 or even 40, 
whatever it is, 40, 60. Um, yeah. Said in, but, but we, we're so low on the public health side. Most of our stuff actually comes from NGOs and things like that because they're the ones who seem to actually do the work. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, no. which I find really stupid. It's like you would yeah. save so much. Like the government would save literally billions of dollars a year. It's like yeah. Australia and America have two of the, well, both of us have the highest rates of disease, uh, um, heart disease, heart disease followed by, I think, colon cancer. Colon cancer okay. is also insanely preventable. So, yeah. so like looking at those sorts of things, it's like, just, yeah, it blows my mind. Like looking at those sorts of, uh, something as simple as a diet change and a little bit of exercise. Yeah. Can yeah. Literally I, change everything. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's not, it's not much different in the U S 20% of GDP spent mm. on health. Yeah, I want to say 1% is spent on public health mm. and we, we, we see what that has given us in, in this society here. And I think there's uh there has been structural structural and systemic ways trying to shut down public health because if we look at public health back in the i don't know when they banned cigarettes on like planes and stuff like that but right now you don't the, the at least 60s yeah. 70s no no no, no. It's, no it's more recent more. yeah yeah i mean in australia 2008 was the i believe was when they officially put a ban on everything when it comes to smoking um i think it was only they said like late 90s um Sort of thing. Okay, okay, but you you see just how like mm. important that was. That was a huge mm. public health win, and since then it's been really hard to have public health wins because I'm yeah. guessing that the people that are in power realize that they're not going to capitalize and get their capitalistic profits yeah. off of off of the systems if they aren't if they aren't able to shut down whatever public health issues it is and stop those things from happening. As we know hospitals get paid from treating people and yeah. un until very very recently in the u.s used to get paid per service as opposed to ensuring that the population is healthy and getting reboost yeah. based on that which is a, a fee for service is a whole other issue in, in healthcare um, yeah that, definitely that yeah it's like that. looking at the whole way it's like australia is really weird um, i don't know if you know much about australia's healthcare system but we're one of the only countries in the world that have both public and private intertwined um so like like in, in america you would have private hospital i assume if correct me if i'm mistaken but in america i believe it's like you have private hospitals and then if you're lucky you might get a couple of like like uh, health clinics which are more like free things we have fully mm -hmm. public health hospitals but we also have private hospitals and they're directly linked and it doesn't matter so in australia we have medicare not medicaid um, and um, basically um, everything, um, that, like within most things except for dental and mental health, are funded to some extent by Medicare. Um, it doesn't matter if, even in general, a lot of private hospitals will still accept Medicare, which I think is really cool. Um, so, like, yeah. Um, like, looking at that, like, something as simple as that could very easily change some issues in America without that meaning you still got to acknowledge the other issues like the inherent distrust especially for people of color things like that um but yeah 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 and, and to that point like health insurance being tied to having a specific type of job mm. in the U.S. is also like a huge barrier to that because as we know a lot of people on the front lines doing like 
retail or well, not retail restaurants and stuff during the pandemic mm-hmm. they don't have health insurance but they're more likely to catch covid and it, it's just playing into those same systemic inequities mm-hmm. which is harming the, the populations that have the least um to, to have the worst outcomes does america have a minimum wage there is a minimum wage um and it, it it's varied by state. There is a, a yeah. federal minimum wage, but then there's like state minimum wages. Um, and don't, also part yeah, of the federal quote, minimum no. wage. <laughs> yeah, I do not know. This country is weird, man. It's, yeah. it's like a bunch of different countries come together in states and yeah. they do their own thing in a lot of ways, which is interesting yeah. in itself. Yeah, no, um, I suppose just quickly as well, um, it, we'll touch on the public health millennial in a minute, but... Um, I just wanted to um, touch base on a few things that have been happening in America recently. Um, as I since I said, one of them being the um, the abortion um, thing happening with abortion. I don't know enough about it. But I've come across it a few times. What what's the go with that? Are they trying to um, ban abortion again? Yeah, it's essentially that that is what it is. And I, I honestly would would just state that go read some more because I definitely do not know all that yeah. is going on. But but essentially that that is the case is that they're trying to take away it it, it falling more into the pro life place where they're saying that a, a baby is born from the time that the yeah. sperm and and the uh, egg meets, which creates a lot of issues, especially I, I think for lower socioeconomic people who may not and at the same point in time we have to think about usa has literally the worst type of um sex education <laughs> no a lot of people just learn about abstinence yeah and then, <laughs> and then they're saying okay abstinence but then when you're having a baby let's not do that there and then even when you have these babies they're not they, they want to cut back all the funding all these public programs to help people that are suffering but yeah. they're not allowing them to to cut off the cut off the hardship of what having a baby consists of mm. and there's, there's probably a lot more nuances in there and i am not versed on this yeah. I, I was actually kind of kind of not reading much about this when it was happening yeah but but i'm i'm definitely uh pro-choice and i, I think that yeah and especially considering that a lot of people making these policies are white men and they're just trying to nice, tell nice. <laughs> i know they're just trying to tell women um, what to do with their bodies, which is yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah. and and more more specifically, old rich white men. Correct. Is that that's the t- other thing you got to distinguish there? Um, as I said, like that that whole issue where it's like um, because the whole world is really run by old rich white men, you miss so, uh, there's so many issues because of that. Um, I'm kind of. Uh, waiting for them to die out, which should be pretty soon, hopefully, um, for some of them. Um, no offence to the old rich white men, but it means uh, we can finally start getting some of the millennials and the uh, and that sort of thing starting to get into, into like, especially things like areas of public health. Like, I mean, I can't remember him, but the guy who um, has basically, uh, I, think, I don't know if he's a, the head of, your, of health in America, um, has, hasn't changed since the HIV epidemic and i mean we know how bad that went in america and how bad it's still technically endemic is probably a better term for america yeah for, yeah, for, yeah, for yeah. that yeah i said the, the in, instead of uh calling it uh, what it is blame, blame instead instead of doing that blaming people and 
calling it the gay disease and all these other issues, which had so many different issues. Like, yeah, yeah. people wouldn't get tested because of that. Whereas here in Australia, like, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting how, like, something as simple as how they... I, like, how, how the government talks about it can change, like, how we go about testing it, how we go about um, talking about it stemming from... And we, the the um, AIDS epidemic didn't even really hit Australia for long because we treated it a lot better, um, which I think is just quite interesting. Um, and the, the other one I had as well was uh, the... Um, what, what, what's your kind of... Um, right word. Um, gun control. Um, as we know in America right now, we, we've been getting the news for, like, for... Was it... I think it was the week before last, it was three mass shootings in a week. Like yeah, and what is what, what's happening, bro? <laughs> it, it, I think it's 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 the same issues. The people, the people, the rich white men with the money are the ones that are lobbying to say, "Oh, we need guns." Um, there was this act I can't remember the name of it right now. I want to say in the nineties that barred the CDC from studying um, gun violence. Uh, yeah, yeah. So the <laughs> CDC has has not has not been having collecting data on gun violence while the amount of mass shootings in the U.S. has probably skyrocketed since then. I, I know there's a bunch of studies out now saying that, um, well, the case the case that people would say is like, give us our guns because then we can protect people if situations happen. The but case and, time, <laughs> yeah. and time and time again, it, that has not been the case. And yeah. studies have shown that households that have guns are more likely to experience a murder or, or someone dying in or, it from or, that gun. Or, or if you're using it to protect yourself, um, you're like, I think it's eight or times more likely, obviously way more likely like to get, um, to get, to get shot, um, by your own gun in a, in a, like if you're in a, um, in a home invasion or that sort of thing, as I said, you're, I think, can't remember the statistic, but it's like, way higher you're more likely to get shot if you have a gun than if you don't have a gun and then you've got the other issue in america like some states with the open carry that's like his dumb idea was that like no offense but <laughs> yeah yeah i i i do not i i get it to some extent and some people saying that they want to like do hunting and stuff hmm. like that i could understand it like in alaska people oh, yeah. do a lot of hunt, hunting and stuff like that but being able to carry, open carry your gun into Walmart, like there's no need for you to do that. And, and, <laughs> and, and in saying that, there's a difference between, I mean, I, I, I've, I've, I, I actually quite like guns. Um, I'm, uh, I, I don't, I'm a big fan of that uh, saying people, uh, guns don't kill people, people kill people. But in saying mm -hmm. that, I do think that um, the fact that it's so easy to get a gun in America, like Kmart and Walmart, I mean, here in Australia, for me to get, if I were to get a gun, I would first need to get a gun license, which can take like a long time for some people. On top of that, you can't go into a shop and just say, point to that gun and say, I want that one. Um, you actually have to, um, like a lot of the times, most places won't even have guns on display anymore. It's you look through a magazine at the shop, I want that one. And then a week later, they'll bring it, they'll have it. Um, at the shop for you like that's how sort of uh like how restricted we are we have things like mental health checks something as simple yeah. as that could like yeah as i said like the sort of things it's like 
and especially uh, I think most of the shootings that have happened recently, like the big mass shootings, at least two of them have been considered as um, sort of racial um, orientated. Yeah, racially. So, like, yeah, if, yeah. if if something like as something as simple as a little mental health check happened, if I'm not, I don't know if you're agree with that, we may have possibly um, been able to kind of uh, prevent that from happening in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, I mean, I, and to that point, like, ideally, I have no issues with guns. Um, but at this point in, in life, like, we've seen that guns and, and people are getting access to guns when they do have mental health challenges, they do have Pre preconditions in their mind, and they've actually like either written or or said things online where they said that mm. they're going to hurt people or they're going to hurt black people, and I, I think to that point is we need to have better systems in place to really ensure that people that are getting guns, uh, people that are that that are going to be safe with guns and and aren't mm. going to use it for these nefarious type of schemes. And yeah, definitely. Time after time. Time, time after time, you would think that they would change the gun laws. And I want to say that there have been some some changes and there has been a lot more push for it now. But why now when people have been yeah. dying in mass shootings for decades and decades? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I think it was our second mass shooting we had. And straight away, we were like, no, nah, we're cutting that shit out right now. We basically started doing gun buybacks all these other different things and then not long after that we started having like heavy like laws around it like um, most people can't even get things like handguns um automatic anything that's automatic that is isn't a single shot rifle i don't think can even be bought in australia so like, things like that it's like something something very like yes yeah, so i want to say very simple but even here in australia we i mean like there's still a lot of people who own guns, but there's far less shootings because of just how I think it's partly how we learn about them. Um, as I said, like, um, unlike a lot of people in America, it's like, here's your first gun, go have fun. Here in Australia, yeah. it's like, here's your first gun. Before you learn how to shoot it, you're going to learn how to clean it. Um, sort of thing, like, as I like, straight from like, as I said, the more military style of learning how to use a gun learn how to use it before you actually learn how to shoot it. It's, yeah, it's yeah, kind yeah. of that idea. Um, yeah. And, yeah, anyway, moving on from uh, that, we'll finish, finish off with the last two. What is the public health millennial? Yeah, um, great, great question. Um, the public health millennial is a platform that I created where I'm just really trying to help public health people navigate their careers, connect them to the resources, create a community, and part of the public health millennial, it, it starts with a blog, which is my website, thephmillennial.com. There's a public health millennial network, which is a network of currently just podcasters, um, podcasting around different public health topics. Um, I have my own podcast, the Public Health Millennial Career Stories podcast, which I, which I think you're an avid listener to. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a YouTube channel, Public Health Millennial, uh, Instagram, which is probably where most people know me from, and at, that's at the PH Millennial. There's also a LinkedIn page, the Public Health Millennial on LinkedIn, and yeah, I'm just a content creator there. On, on LinkedIn as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, so it's just a platform. Um, hmm. As I said, as I said, I thought that Public Health was so cool, and that. And when I looked for, for people and things talking about it when I graduated from my MPH back 
okay, in 2019, they weren't any, no one was mm-hmm. doing it really. So I'm, I, I said, okay, this is a gap. Let me fill it. Let me talk about all the cool things that you can do in public health and just share that information. Definitely, and it's yeah. grown a lot from there. So from that, would you say there's still a big need to like, I mean, uh, I, I, I'm big. I actually agree wholeheartedly. I think there's a huge issue where we, um, we are probably the worst area of health when it comes to promoting. No one knows what mm-hmm. public health is until shit hits the fan. Correct. It's an example of that. And then because they don't know about it beforehand, it basically makes it really hard to, like, uh, promote it because they only know it from the 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 bullshit that went on through COVID. Um, us pretending we knew everything when we really didn't and they should have just said that. Something as simple, like, all those sorts of issues moving on from that. But, like, the... Um, as I said, I, I agree there needs to be a huge um, push to promote public health and that's something I, I that's part of the reason I run my podcast as well and um, hopefully I'll actually be going to school soon with my school um, to kind of help promote public health through for like younger people, um, which I think would be really cool if I can get to do that. I've been trying to push my head teacher to let, to let me do that, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, that definitely very needed. And and I think some people might think, oh, the public health space is like saturated right now, but that's not the case. No, no one says that for, for the medical space. No one says that for, mm. for all the doctors that are on Instagram. Nurses. They only like they only yeah, nurses, they they only a fraction of public health people on there. And as we know, public health is just so broad. So yeah. I think the more the more voices and the more perspectives that we get from people mm. in the field sharing this. Um, the better it is. So yeah, I'm I'm glad that you have this podcast, and I I'm, mm. I hope that you can get out there and, and chat more with those young people mm. and let them know that this is this is something that you can do. This is a way you can improve yeah, the health of yeah. not only yourself but your community. Yeah, no, definitely. Actually, saying that, um, with you saying like the saturated field, to put it in perspective, okay, there's over there's over I believe there's over a thousand people in the nursing program here at Flinders University where I'm studying. Have a guess. Just have a stab in the dark. How many people they're doing there are in the public health degree and the certificate combined? Fifty. Seventeen. Oh, sorry, um, twenty-seven. Wow. That's combined. <laughs> um, and, wow. And 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 mind you, no one has graduated from this degree yet. It is so new that I mean I'm like essentially the first real um, student. Um, a student uh, so a coordinator person for the public health degree which I think is really cool um, and to end um, what has been well, and with two things number one what has been the low light of your career Ooh. low life I, I definitely think it was so when I was in my masters of public health I was trying to get health administration fellowships, so fellowships in like health systems. Um, and I was rejected from four of those. I got a couple like follow-up interviews and stuff mm-hmm. like that, but I was unable to get that. And at that point in time, it felt like a very low life. But in hindsight, that was really good in the sense that I'm glad that I didn't end up in a healthcare setting where I was working, but mm-hmm. I was able to get my community health fellowship where I did a lot more community-driven and yeah. community-centered work in Alaska. So that was definitely a low point for me. But 
uh, in hindsight, it, <laughs> it all worked out. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. And um, what has been the highlight of your career so far? I, this this is a really good question and a really hard one. And I, I, I sat down and tried to think of an answer for this. And I, I really just don't have a good one. But highlights that, that I really enjoy are like, prior to starting this podcast, you sharing that you listen to this podcast. That means mm. the world to me because when I started this, I didn't think anyone would care damn about what I had to say. Damn, but, but now, now people reach out and seeing like people comment on on whether that's a YouTube video I post or uh, leaving a review or messaging me on LinkedIn or Instagram and just sharing how appreciative they are for this and that they don't want it to stop. Mm. Those little messages all along the way have, have been like huge highlights for me and have really like shown me that I am where I need to be. I need to continue sharing this because it's helpful to a lot of people and people need this information. And I'm glad that I was able to start and do this. So those all those little reach yeah. outs from people saying that I've helped them or that they, they've learned so much from things that I've shared are, are definitely highlights that I take into, into all the work that I do. And I'm just happy that I'm able to do this. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, cool. So to finish up, um, once again, I'm not in there. I apologize for this. But um, what has been the um, right word? Um, what, um, what resources would you recommend for people either starting public health or just in general, like, I, like your, your end question, essentially? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our resources are definitely say follow me mm. Instagram at the PH Millennial, yeah. and then from Instagram oh, you can have obviously. Yeah, yeah, you can navigate to all all the different resources that the Public Health Millennial has. Um, I I think getting active on LinkedIn is is a great way because that was how I because when I got into public health, I had no clue what it was, but it was just a in my master's of public health, it was just two years of like learning not only the skills and skill sets, but like what people do in it. And LinkedIn was a huge resource for me. I would literally LinkedIn stalk people and look at their career progression, see what kind of skill sets they had. So I definitely recommend doing that. Um, there's this awesome book called 101 Careers yeah. in Public Health by Beth Seltzer. My school, my school has that, and I said, I know, I, had, I know, I know one of the guys in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now you get to interview him too, yeah. and and have and have the cross nut. I think that I, I, that I book, want to get her on at some point as well. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me know if you you need mm. that connection. Yeah, definitely. That, yeah. I, I think I've I actually can, I, can, I think I have connected with her on uh, LinkedIn. That amazing tool. Exactly. And, yeah. and that, that's another thing about LinkedIn is like, you can listen to this interview, you can see something on news and see someone's name and mm. hear the cool things or even that uh, what the health podcast uh, documentary that you're talking about, mm. you can see people you can see people's mm. um, names on there and connect with them on LinkedIn or follow yeah. them on LinkedIn and see the work that they're doing. And I think that that is amazing. We didn't have that 10 years ago. So so using that kind of resources, I think is, is great. But that book is a, a great way to better understand different public health careers, because as we know, it's a very vast and broad field. Make, make sure you get the newest edition as well, because the other ones aren't, uh, they're, they're good, but they aren't overly helpful, as helpful as the newer, newer edition okay. as well, just for people who don't know. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah, any other areas? Obviously, we said the podcast, your area, um, as I said, like LinkedIn. 
Uh, LinkedIn, and I, I think outside of that, there are many, many public mm. health creators on, on Instagram now that you can reach out to and you can like just follow them to see more about what public health is, what you do in a public health job, reach out to everyone. Everyone's very open mm. to answering questions uh, to do that. I also started a, a Discord community called Community Health and Wellness. So if you'd like to join that, go to thephmillennial.com forward slash join to join there and that, that's really a community not only focused on professional development but focused on your well-being as a public health professional well, obviously yeah yeah and, and networking and building that community yeah. which which is hugely important so definitely get out there reach out to people have informational interviews because mm. i think i think the the more conversations you have the more nuanced information you know the better it's going to be in serving you for your career yeah, definitely. Yeah. So um, I suppose finishing up now. So uh, thanks, Amari. Heaps for being on the podcast. Uh, it was awesome. Um, yeah. Thanks, Heaps. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm glad that I can come on and I look forward to having you on my podcast. Everyone go subscribe so you can look out to see when Jamil is on my podcast. Yep. All right. Cool. Thanks.